Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Bridgehead at AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. Thank you all so much for being with us. Again, just briefly, for those of you who are interested in listening to other interviews that we've done in the past, please visit unmaskingchoice.ca and check out the Bridgehead radio program on our blog. Now, the interview that we have for you today is with a woman named Dr. Clonora Hudson-Weems. She's a professor of English at the University of Missouri, but we didn't interview her about anything really English-related. Dr. Clonora Hudson-Weems is also known for writing a book called Emmett Till, The Sacrificial Lamb of the Civil Rights Movement, in which she makes the case that photographs of a murdered 14-year-old boy in 1955 were the catalyst for the civil rights movement, and that these photos really propelled this injustice into the public light where it could be seen and dealt with, that it awakened the consciences of America, especially Northern Americans, to the reality of what was going on down South and really forced people to deal with the brutality of what segregation and what racism actually meant for America as a country and whether or not they could tolerate this ongoing injustice. Now, Dr. Clonora Hudson-Weems is also working on a number of other Emmett Till-related projects. She's written a number of different books, and she herself was actually a civil rights activist during the time when many people were fighting for the end of segregation across the South. So we really hope you enjoy this interview and the insights that Dr. Hudson Weems shares with us today. Basically what I want to do is have a discussion on your work, Emmett Till, The Sacrificial Lamb of the Civil Rights Movement, because in that book you argue that the murder of this young boy in 1955 was really the catalyst uh, for the civil rights movement. Can you tell our listeners a bit about those events and what they triggered? Okay. Sacrificial Lamb of the Civil Rights Movement was uh, actually the printing of the publication of my 1988 Ford doctoral dissertation entitled Emmett Till, The Impetus of the Modern Civil Rights Movement. Mm. That's 28 years ago uh, that we started in 88 with the dissertation. But actually, I argued uh, with uh, the University of, of Iowa that uh, Rosa Parks, uh, uh, you know, heroic stance December 1, 1955, uh, in refusing to relinquish her bus seat to a white man in Montgomery, Alabama, as the catalyst of the movement, actually came three months and three days after Emmett Till was brutally lynched in 1955 that actually uh, catapulted us into the movement because people were very, very, uh, you know, just shocked and incensed by the brutal lynching of this 14-year-old kid for simply whistling at a white woman uh, and felt that basically uh, it was an abominable act and if we could not, uh, you know, uh, protect our children, our future generations, we had nothing to live for. And so there were many, many demonstrations and, 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 and rallies, and Mamie spoke all over the place. Uh, she was actually uh, advised by Raphael Moody, who was her cousin, second cousin, and himself, you know, a uh, civil rights activist and also labor union leader with A. Philip Randolph. And he uh, actually uh, strategized everything, went to the governor of the state of uh, Illinois and uh, forced the governor to force the state of Mississippi to relinquish the body that was about to be buried without the mother. So when people saw, when uh, Rayfield Moody uh, suggested when the body got there, the box got there, it was not to be opened. He insisted they opened it, that the mother had paid over $1,000 for it. And when they opened it and saw the bloated face of Emmett, the true 
symbol of uh, the ugliness of, of American racism. That's when uh, they decided that they wanted to show it to the world. And so when people came in, as it were, it was a Labor Day weekend in um, uh, September uh, 1955. Uh, uh, they came in droves and buses and trucks and cars and trains to uh, to attend the uh, the funeral of Emmett. And, uh, and, and, and it just kept ringing out, you know, this can never happen again. And so that was the true catalyst. Rosa Parks will always be the mother. Dr. King will always be the father of the movement. But Teal was always the catalyst. He was the child of the movement. This lynching that happened to Emmett Till, even though this was particularly brutal, lynchings and murders and all sorts of, of savage acts of racism had happened many times before. What made Emmett Till's case so different from the other cases? Because people were able, first of all, the child was at the heart of the matter. Usually, you're seeing lynchings of men, every once in a while women, but men, black men, for allegedly uh, some indiscretion with white women. But a child, a 14-year-old kid, only 14 for one month, that was abominable. And moreover, uh, it was the age of the media. People could see it on TV. Uh, prior to that, there was no visual imagery of, uh, of lynchings. But to see this, this is the thing that really brought mainly to the and her mother to the television when they actually were playing the uh, the uh, trial right after that. And he says, she's got to be at that trial. The world is waiting. they got to see her. Everybody was looking at 5 o'clock news. Mm-hmm. And to see this live, to see this bloody face on TV, if you couldn't be there for the funeral and it was done and over with, this is the thing that moves people, you know. So I think that it was the fact that he was a child, and the fact that the world could witness it with their own eyes. The true ugliness of American racism. So those photos of, those photos of, of Emmett Till's uh, corpse in the casket that got published in, in Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazine, those pictures really shifted the debate in America on, on segregation. Yes, my father-in-law, Ernest Witness Sr., the photojournalist who was the official photographer for the civil rights movement, was the one responsible for that bloated face of Emmett that you see everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually was there at everything, the uh, the trial, taking the pictures of everything, you know, he was there to do it. Even taking a picture of Mr. Uh, Wright, whose home Emmett was abducted from, uh, as he pointed in the courthouse, white guys and said, Dahi, Dahi. That was the first time you would see a black man in Mississippi pointing his finger at a white man, at white men. They had pointed those two murderers out. Uh, and so he took all of those pictures. He later uh, was a photographer for the uh, Montgomery bus boycott because it was King that asked him to cover the Montgomery bus boycott the same way he had covered the T.O. case. And so the picture of King, uh, King boarding the bus, those were all of his photos. So he was very good in uh, capturing the imagery, you see, the uh, the, the, the photos were very, very seminal in documenting and preserving the movement, the particulars that went on during that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the first time, a, a lot of people in the North who had ignored uh, segregation as a, you know, a Southern problem, um, you know, sort of the evolution of, of the South's peculiar institution, do you think that the fact that this that Emmett Till's body came home to Chicago and was witnessed by so many people in the North helped drive the impetus for the civil rights movement that way and, and sort of forcing the Northerners to address a problem they had been ignoring? Most definitely, 
I actually interviewed some uh, white northerners. I was a Ford Fellows that stated, and a couple of them were from the north. We were in D.C. because I presented uh, my doctoral dissertation beginnings in 1987 at the National Ford Foundation in Washington, D.C. at an opening plenary. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said that uh, it was very clear that there was no uh, insulation from, uh, from this kind of... Uh, act and they realized that it could happen to anybody at any time and there was there was no protection just because you were up north you could still become a victim of this type of abomination mm-hmm. uh, and I believe that in fact I, I was at the University of Utah uh, a year after graduation 1989 and uh, one of the uh, reporters in the audience asked me, you know, why in the TL today it happened a long time ago. You know, this is Utah, away from the deep south and everything. Mm-hmm. I said, because it has a message, even today. It right. has a message that uh, uh, that racism is not a benign phenomenon. Right. It's malignant. It's toxic. And it kills. Mm-hmm. And so we need to understand that we have to get away from that, which is why I put so much emphasis on, on that book that you uh, referred to, mm-hmm. Emmett Teal, uh, as the uh, canvas of the movement, because I wanted to see it. And of course, in my subsequent book called The Definitive Emmett Teal, I began to unravel the flip side of the coin, which of course my latest, that I have third book, uh, Plagiarism, but the last book just came out last, uh, in, in, you know, in the last couple of months, uh, called Emmett. Uh, legacy, redemption, and forgiveness. Uh, now that book uh, actually started on, in the second book, the Definitive Material, in which I show the flip side of the coin to show how it had impacted not only blacks in America but whites in particular as well. Uh, because we look at the, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Whitten, who was the uh, 34-year-old attorney that uh, was one of the five attorneys that represented the murderers, mm-hmm. who later was very remorseful and spent a lifetime trying to atone by representing poor blacks in the state of Mississippi. That's the spirit of redemption that comes out in my book uh, called Image uh, that I've also uh, done a, a movie script for. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot yes, of... we are all in, Emmett, by the way, Emmett Teal was a call celebra, very clearly that. That was established in the 1955. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was one British guy who had come in contact with an American, and, he, and the question he, uh, he raised was, are you from the land where the boy was killed? People all over the world were shaken by this abominable act of this four, the, the murder of this 14-year-old kid. And so the labor union had actually spread out uh, and was dealing with the higher echelon uh, members of the labor union all over uh, Europe and even, uh, but just every, everywhere. It was just not the United States uh, scenario anymore. It was all over the world. Right. Yeah, and you've, you've said that this, for the first time, people could really see what the brutality actually looks like. And we're talking about, right, the 60s where so many iconic images came out from, you know, the shooting at Kent State, you know, the girl running down the road after Napalm had hit her village in yes, Vietnam. Exactly. We have, you know, um, African Americans being thrown up against the wall, battered by fire hoses and dogs attacking them. How, what, what sort of role did imagery playing to play in, in the success of the civil rights movement? It was absolutely uh, unavoidable, uh, its impact, because when you can see something, it's one thing, my father-in-law always said that uh, pictures uh, are worth a a thousand words. Mm -hmm. You can talk about a thing all you want, but when you see something with your own eyes, that's it. That's it. And when they saw Emmett Till in 55 
and that was the very early stages of televisions in the homes, okay? That was it. And it, and, and it continued to grow, and we saw it in the 60s, and people were always abreast of everything because they saw it. Nobody was telling them what they saw. They actually saw it with their own eyes. Mm -hmm. So, um, so photography, I, in fact, one of my chapters in my dissertation, I had a 400-page dissertation. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, dissertation had a whole chapter on visual imagery mm -hmm. because that's how important it is. That's mm -hmm. just how important it is. In my current book, uh, throughout the book I have photographs, and then at the end, at the very end, I have several pages of just photographs. Just photographs. Because it's indisputable. When you see it, it's indisputable. Right. And one of the things that some authors have pointed out, yourself included, is just that the imagery coming out of the South, not just with Emmett Till, but with the reaction to the Freedom Riders and the reaction to the marches, was that it highlighted the barbarism of those those in opposition and really showed to people in the North that what what was happening could not be ignored and, and that racism, as you put it, is not something benign, but it's something malignant. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's why, and of course, from uh, still uh, photography to movies, that's why movies are so important. Mm -hmm. And it's so important that we have accurate movies. Uh, you know, not just documentaries, but what I uh, set out to do with the, with the uh, novel that has become, you know, I did the script for it as well, because I want to actually show people what I want them to get from it. Mm -hmm. And so when they see the, the uh, screen, the silver screen, and they see Emmett, and they, they see the brutal lynching, and, and they see him before, because it's more than just that. Right. He had a life before he was lynched, you know, so I go back to that, and I'm very fortunate, because uh, most of the people who came after me, because at the time I was doing this, nobody was talking about it. In fact, University of Iowa tried to get me not to write about it. Why can't you just say it was a very significant fact in the rise of the movement? Because it was far more, it was the catalyst. What happens if you can't defend it? I said, simple, I don't get a PhD and I will to take that chance. And I took that chance. Right. And in the end, they were very, very happy to see that was proven that uh, that thing is what really, really catapulted us into the movement. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying essentially is that uh, we, we are very, very much interested in seeing people. And then when you see image before and after, and when you see the, the people, the trial and the venom in their faces, and when you see Mr. Whitten, who years later, we became very close, and he, he, he said, you know, uh, he, he, was, he was very remorseful. You can feel him. You can feel it. And I told him, I said, you can never change the past, but you can alter the future. You can shape it and reshape it into something positive. Mm -hmm. and, and, and his feeling of redemption doesn't compromise the legacy of it. It just makes it a bigger picture because now you see that when we make mistakes, we can do something. What does God want us to do? He wants us to, in some way, uh, do good, to be, mm -hmm. be redeemed of what we've done. We need to be blessed and, and, and we need to be forgiven. Mm -hmm. And so that's the whole thing. I want to give a whole story and have heroes for us all because we can't change that abominable past. It happened. Mm -hmm. We can never change it. I have the words of the originals because, as I was saying, uh, these people, most of them are deceased now. Mamie and I were very close. We talked almost daily. Moody mm -hmm. and I talked about a year and a half before I even met Mamie. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was probably two years before I met Mamie because he was a very good friend of my father-in-law's, and he introduced me to it. And after I finished, I came to her because I wanted her to put the... And she said, why did it take you so long to come to Nicaragua? It was just I came to her right after I turned the dissertation in in December, right before Christmas.
said, because you're the icing for the cake, and, I, and the icing comes on last. I want you to validate everything that I've done. Mm-hmm. And I got letters from Mamie, and I got letters from Moody, and I got letters and pictures from these people, and, and I have the original words of those who can no longer say it. I got videos and audios and letters. I have the material needed to come out with a very, very accurate assessment of how this brutal legend became the true catalyst of the modern civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s. Mm-hmm. It actually set the stage for the Montgomery bus boycott. And it was later, much later, of course, that even Rosa Parks admitted that when someone asked her, why didn't she go back to the back of the bus? She said, I thought about Emmett. Did Mamie Till ever tell you personally what helped her make the decision to have an open casket funeral, that open casket funeral that, that did change so much? Well, actually, Moody, when, when the body, he'd, he'd, uh, he'd gone to the governor, because he, he was, a, you know, an activist, and he was also a political figure. Uh, he had gone to, uh, he was a leader, uh, like Angela Randolph of the labor union. And so he went to the governor, and he was able to get that body. He said, he's a resident of the state of Illinois. Where did he get that body back here? But they sealed that casket, that box, and said, do not open. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they, they thought no one would open because they didn't want the world to see that. That's mm-hmm. the visual image and the power of it. They didn't want anybody to see it. But when the body got there, Moody said, you got to open that box. you got to see what's in it. It could be dirt in it. That mother paid over $1,000 for it. you got to open that box. When they opened that box, there it was in living colors. Mm-hmm. And that's when Moody said, somebody, somebody, everybody's got to see this. And Mamie said, I want the world to see what they did to my child. Mm-hmm. It was decided in that funeral home that they would have an open casket. And there were some people, you know, who were very annoyed at the funeral, I mean, at the, uh, uh, at the trial. I have the trial reenacted. Uh, you have uh, a southern white woman said, what's wrong with her that she would let everybody see something like that? But we know what it did. It sensitized blacks and whites alike. Mm-hmm. Even the whites were very, very moved by that. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the British guy would ask, are you from the land where the boy was killed? It was just too much. Right, because often people then would oppose the photography, and we know that many of the photographers who were photographing civil abusive civil rights workers were attacked because the perpetrators always hate the photographs because the photographs are indisputable right. evidence. <laughs> My father-in-law was such a brave guy, you know. He, he, he died in, 19, in 2007, but mm-hmm. he was something else. He'd slide in and take those pictures, and he was, hey, you have to He was taking pictures in the, in the courtroom, and he said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, and, and, but the, Mm-hmm. You see, he was clever because he knew that this is the way you prove it with photography. Indisputable. Right, right. What sort of experiences then, uh, just, just on, a, on, a, on a bit of a personal note now, to introduce our, our readers a little bit more to you and your work, what sort of personal experiences, uh, what sort of personal connection uh, do you have to the civil rights movement? Well, I was an activist as a student. I 
got my uh, PhD, I'm sorry, I got my bachelor's uh, in 1987 from uh, Lemoyne College in Memphis. Mm -hmm. Memphis was sort of like the, uh, uh, the gateway to freedom, you know, to Chicago and all that. So we had all, it, it was like the civil rights hub. Everything was taking place in Memphis, Tennessee. Right. As a student, you know, I was always in marches. And I remember when uh, James Meredith was shot uh, down. You know, he was the guy that tried to integrate Ole Miss in Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, and he was shot down. Right away, there was a march that was organized immediately. And we in Memphis had to actually uh, take, uh, you know, a bus down to Mississippi and then catch up with the walkers, you know, the marchers. And we, we marched all the way to Jackson, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So I was an activist. I was an English major with the, my first degree. I got two degrees in British lit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but my first degree, but here I was in English, one of six in English, and yet I found it very easy to operate on two plateaus. Right. I was a student in British lit, but I was an activist in America. Right. And I, there was no contradiction because I was a human being who had a right to whatever passion I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I've always chosen the road to uh, helping to free uh, the, the, any, any oppressed people, including, of course, first and foremost, African Americans. Mm -hmm. In your experiences as an activist, what's the one experience that always stands out the most in your memory today? Right. Uh, against the wrong. 
Right. Well, that, any wrong act, you know, that's just my passion. Absolutely. Well, that's an absolutely fantastic note to close on, uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Reams. Thank you so much for taking my call. Thank you so much. So that, ladies and gentlemen, was Dr. Clenora Hudson-Weems being interviewed by myself, Jonathan Van Maren, and I'm the Communications Director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. Again, if you enjoyed this interview and you would like to hear other interviews we've done, please visit us at unmaskingchoice.ca. Uh, we look forward to having you join us again next week, and we hope you all have a great weekend.